All right, well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> My apologies that I'm not with you in person today. Uh, Lewis has uh, tested positive for COVID, so we're, um, yeah, I'm preaching from home today. Um, but we are in uh, Revelation this morning again, uh, Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses. So please turn there in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2. These are the words of Jesus. Uh, he started speaking back in uh, verse 17 of chapter 1, uh, and John writes them down for us. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false i know you are enduring patiently and are bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary <clears throat> but i have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the works you did at first if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we've just heard uh, in that passage that the Spirit speaks to the churches through your word. Uh, and Lord, I pray that that would be true this morning, that as I uh, speak from these uh, these verses of Revelation chapter 2, that you would speak by your Holy Spirit into the hearts of Mafra Community Church <clears throat> uh, to encourage uh, where encouragement is needed and, and uh, convict where conviction is needed, um, to uh, show us uh, your son, uh, because that is always needed, uh, and make us more like him. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last couple of years or so, uh, you've probably heard Steve talk about his uh, prayer for this church. Uh, and for Mafra Community Church and for other churches that he has a close relationship with. Uh, he says his prayer is that there would be a church in Mafra uh, preaching the gospel until Jesus returns. The prayer, this prayer that Mafra Community Church would continue until Jesus returns. I hope that's, um, maybe you don't pray in those specific words, but I hope that's your desire as well. Um, it's certainly Jesus' desire. Uh, we know um, that it's his promise, at, at least at a global level, we know that he will build his church uh, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, Isaiah put it this way, he said, of the increase of Jesus' government and of peace, there will be no end. So at a, at a global level, we know we, there, there are these promises in scripture that the advance of the kingdom of the gospel uh, will never end. Uh, but also at a local level as well, this is Jesus' desire. Uh, that uh, We see in these passages Jesus uh, writing to, speaking to local churches 
uh, with the intent that they would continue to grow uh, and hold fast and last until he returns. But we know that that's not necessarily a, uh, a, uh, an automatic thing. Uh, many of us will have seen churches die uh, or, or perhaps get so diseased that you might wish they were dead. So what does it take for a church to, for a local church to be a lasting church? That's the, the real question of these uh, two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, and indeed, uh, the, uh, the book of Revelation addresses this as well. What does it take for a church to last until Jesus returns? <clears throat> what characterizes a church that lasts until Jesus returns? That's the central question of these two chapters. That's the central question of this passage that we're going to look at today. What does it take to be a church that lasts until Jesus returns? So with that question in mind, let's start by uh, looking at the passage of the Ephesians, the passage that Jesus addressed to the Ephesians. Uh, the passage before us today is pretty neatly structured. Each of these letters has a uh, introduction, uh, which uh, shows which in which Jesus gives a symbolic description of himself uh, and a conclusion, uh, which addresses uh, those who uh, who are called to hear and to uh, overcome. And in between, there's a main section. In this one, uh, there is a there are three parts to the main section: a positive, a negative, and then another positive. Uh, but let's start with verse 1, that introduction section. Let me read verse 1 again. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This introduction, this symbolic description of Jesus is, is really important. It serves a crucial purpose in the context of this letter. This verse tells us who God is, what Christ has done for us. Uh, it tells us this is who the Holy Spirit uh, is working in us to, to bring out and make us like him. This is who Jesus is. Uh, and then in light of that, uh, then verses 2 to 6 tell us, so this is how you live. And so this vision of Jesus is at the core of this letter. Uh, at, at the core is the gospel. That's uh, what I've entitled this first point. The core is the gospel. So here we go. There's that uh, description of Jesus again. Here's that gospel core. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, both of these descriptions speak of the authority of Jesus. They speak of his transcendent nature. <clears throat> uh, that is to say that Jesus is high above us, reigning over his church. 
Uh, in the first description, he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Uh, these stars, as verse, uh, verse 20 of chapter 1 tells us, uh, are a picture of the church, or of the churches. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, uh, the stars represent the people of God. Uh, Abraham was told that his offspring would be like the stars of heaven. Uh, and from then on, the, the people of God are described as stars. Um, and particularly in Daniel, uh, the, uh, the saints are described as stars shining in heaven. And so Jesus says he holds the stars, he holds the churches in his right hand. He rules over the church, he controls it with his hands. Uh, the, the second description tells us that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. I think there's uh, something significant here about his transcendence in that Jesus is the one walking uh, and where candlesticks. Uh, Jesus is as much greater than us as we are than inanimate objects. <clears throat> uh, we see in this verse then uh, transcendence and authority, but at the same time we also see imminence and tenderness. He holds us in his right hand. That's a, uh, a, a very tender, loving image. Uh, for those of us, for, if you are uh, facing uh, sin in your life, uh, you need to be reminded that you are eternally right with God. Uh, if you're facing some insurmountable issue in your life, and you, uh, you need to remember that nothing can pull us away from God's love. And so think through the implications of this image. Uh, if you are held in Jesus' right hand, then your sin is done away with, uh, and nothing can take you out of God's loving control. Your eternal destiny is secure, because Jesus holds you in his omnipotent, powerful, strong, loving right hand. Or well, think about this aspect. Who, uh, who sits at the right hand of the Father? Well, we know that's Jesus. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, uh, and in Jesus' right hand is the church. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not worthy to be in anyone's right hand, let alone in heaven. Uh, and so for us to be in Jesus' right hand is a work of grace and love. Uh, as chapter 1 tells us, he, loved, he loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, or Psalm 73 is, puts this really beautifully. Uh, the psalmist writes, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail. Our hearts fail, our bodies fail, but our security doesn't rest in that. Our 
strength and our joy don't rest in ourselves and my heart and my flesh may fail but god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever <clears throat> uh, i hope you remember that god is the strength of your heart and your portion forever because jesus holds you in his right hand <clears throat> as i said that's a a comforting image of tenderness, tender love and care. I, uh, I open today by talking about what does it take to be a church that lasts until Jesus returns. And the most important thing, the most comforting thing, is that it's not about what we do, but it's about Jesus holding us in his right hand. <clears throat> Uh, likewise, Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. He doesn't walk around them. He doesn't walk near them. He doesn't walk above them, but he walks among, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Uh, we see transcendence and imminence. Jesus is close to us. We see authority. Jesus controls and reigns over his church, and he does so with tenderness transcendence and authority along with imminence and tenderness uh, these things which we uh, perhaps tend to think of as contradictions mingled in the person of jesus christ this is the gospel at the core of this passage <clears throat> uh, and it introduces us to the key uh, the key points of this passage uh, the ephesians as we're about to see had a uh, were commended in their holiness so they had a great sense of God's authority and, and transcendence, uh, but there must be love too. Holiness and love, authority and tenderness, transcendence and imminence. Now, this imminence of Jesus uh, walking among and knowing the churches kind of leads directly then into verse 2. Uh, Jesus says, I know your works. Uh, often when we hear something like that, it's, uh, it sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? I know what you're up to. I know what you're doing. Uh, but here it's a really positive thing. It introduces a great list of works, a, a list of commendations. These commendations are admirable, uh, which is what I've called the second point. Uh, verses 2 and 3, the commendations are admirable. Um, now, that's quite important. We've, we've read the whole thing. We know there's a but coming, a key issue that needs to be confronted. But Jesus starts with a really long list of commendations, of really admirable stuff. Uh, read that again. Verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. <clears throat> A good help is hard to find, isn't it? Uh, what any what you want uh, as as a if you're a, an employer or um, or some or a boss of any description, uh, what you want is is good workers. 
workers who do the right thing. Uh, workers who uh, do what you need them to do when you need them to do it. People who aren't afraid of hard work, uh, who will stick at the job through to the end, who will make sure their work is of the highest quality uh, and will even check on others' work to make sure that uh, there's no shoddy work being done on site. Uh, workers who, in the face of any setback, will push through, who won't slow down or stop until the end of the day, uh, who you know will finish the task you've given them uh, to the highest possible standards. Uh, tell me I'm wrong. Who doesn't want a worker like that? <clears throat> uh, who doesn't want a church like that? Uh, Jesus is commending the Ephesians for being a church like that. These are really great stuff. <clears throat> uh, you could look back over the uh, the things that the Ephesians had been uh, had heard from Paul in in, for example, the letter to Ephesians, uh, what he spoke to them in Acts, what he uh, sent to uh, one and two Timothy, because Timothy was in Ephesus. Uh, John, in his epistle, was probably writing to Ephesus, uh, and there's a whole bank of, of things that the Ephesians had been taught throughout the first century, uh, and they're really living it out. Persevering, uh, living out good works, keeping out false teaching. <clears throat> um, the, uh, the Ephesians were doing really great at, at purity uh, and perseverance. And those are two things that we all need. We all need purity. We all need perseverance. These are, are two essential characteristics of a church that lasts until Jesus returns. Purity, the teaching of scripture, the act of good works, the resistance of falsehood. Uh, perseverance, keeping on going uh, in the face of opposition, not growing weary, uh, but persevering, continuing, enduring through the strength that God provides. Uh, these are traits that we should uh, hope are true of every one of us. These are admirable qualities. They're necessary qualities. <clears throat> um, some of us are going to uh, uh, look at this passage and, and gravitate to the, the negative and, and look for what's going to be uh, um, confronting. But we need to have in our minds that Jesus is not telling them to do away with these traits. He's not uh, putting in a nice token compliment to sort of butter them up. These are really essential qualities of a healthy, lasting church. These are essential. But as essential as these things are, they're not everything. And that brings us to verses 4 and 5, the key, con the, the key confrontation. Now, the word but there in verse 4 is, is kind of designed to give you whiplash. Uh, these grand heights of, of verses 2 and 3, uh, and then verse 4 is a sudden drop, a sharp downward turn. Uh, I know you're enduring patiently for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. <clears throat> Uh, that word abandoned there is, is kind of a shocking one. 
Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, it's translated divorce. The idea uh, in, in that word is, uh, well, there's a few different uh, ways that it's used, but, uh, but the idea of abandoning is like a husband abandoning his wife. <clears throat> uh, not like a, a, a mutual no-fault divorce like today, uh, where you separate mutually, you each get half of what you own, uh, and everyone is adequately provided for. In, in those days, of course, divorce meant just kicking your wife out of the house. <clears throat> to put it crudely. And this is that idea of the word abandon. Uh, so Jesus, as Jesus describes it, they haven't, you know, just lost love as if it's been sort of misplaced. They haven't even, uh, it's not even described like they willfully neglected love. As Jesus describes it, they, they've pulled over on the highway, kicked love out the car door and sped off down the road. And Jesus says to the Ephesians, you have abandoned your first love. <clears throat> uh, now that kind of begs the question, what, um, what love did they abandon? Uh, is it love for Christian brothers and sisters, love for the lost, uh, or love for God? Um, the passage doesn't really explain it, so it's, it's kind of hard to, um, to come down any particular way with any certainty. <clears throat> and different commentators take different tacks. Um, at some level, of course, we have to remember that these loves uh, aren't really divisible in that sense. You can't have one without the other. Or if you do have one without the other, you don't actually have any of them at all. But in saying that, I think uh, first and foremost, it was love for Jesus that they had abandoned. Uh, of course, that would have worked itself out in a, in a lack of love for each other and probably love for the lost as well. But losing uh, their first love for Jesus, uh, I believe, was probably the fundamental issue. Uh, and we see that uh, throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus addressing that theme. <clears throat> We see uh, in, in Revelation on basically every page we are given reasons to love Jesus. We see people worshipping and adoring Jesus. Uh, we even see people uh, giving up their lives uh, because they love Jesus more than they love themselves. Uh, all of this is in stark contrast to the world uh, who love their lives and their idols, uh, their money, their immorality, their pleasure, uh, their this, their that, their everything but never Jesus. <clears throat> Revelation calls us to love Jesus. Uh, and the reason for that is because this is the third essential quality of a church that lasts. Uh, I spoke before about purity and perseverance. And the third is passion for Jesus. <clears throat> uh, we need to hold the purity of the gospel in our, in our words and thoughts and actions. Uh, purity 
which perseveres through our life and death. And all of that needs to be motivated by a passion for the glory of Jesus. A heartfelt love for Jesus, a deep gratitude for his great grace towards us. <clears throat> this is the third essential quality, as I said, and so uh, as I've uh, entitled this third section, this confrontation is key. And so Jesus says, uh, you have abandoned your first love and you need to recover it. Uh, verse 5, <clears throat> remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Um, you could sum this up as repent, uh, sorry, remember, repent and resume. Uh, what Jesus is calling for here is a process of church-wide repentance. Not just individual repentance, but church-wide repentance. Jesus is addressing the whole church here. Um, corporate sin is not something we tend to think about in our culture. Uh, my sin is my sin and your sin is your sin. Uh, and, and we sort of um, don't really share sins in a corporate sense. But uh, the Bible insists that we do. Uh, we saw this in Isaiah a few months back. Uh, because of corporate sin, the whole nation of Israel was carried off into captivity. <clears throat> uh, here in Revelation, Jesus almost effectively threatens the same thing. He says, I will come to you uh, and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If there's no corporate repentance, Jesus says, then the whole church is threatened. Uh, and not just threatened that the lamp will go out, but that Jesus himself will come and take the lampstand away. Uh, in other words, it's gone for good, never again to shine the light of the gospel in, in Ephesus. There are serious issues here, church-wide issues. Uh, and as I said, there's three steps to this, this church-wide repentance. Remembering, repenting, and resuming. Uh, remember the works you did, of the works of love before you abandoned it. Uh, it's easy enough to go, oh, well, we had problems in the past, but we're doing much better now. If you don't actually uh, think back to what it was like. Think critically and carefully, uh, and look back on what love looks like in the way that you uh, in the way that you used to be. <clears throat> uh, remember, Jesus says, and repent. Uh, the core idea of this word is is conversion, uh, which we kind of tend to think about as as the start of Christian life. Um, but Jesus calls for repentance all the time. Uh, Martin Luther's first uh, of his 95 theses, his, uh, his beefs with the Roman Catholic Church, was that all of life needs to be repentance. <clears throat> uh, the gospel tells us that Jesus died to set us free from sin, to cleanse us from it, uh, to transform us. As Ephesians says, uh, he died to sanctify the church. 
to cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. So this is not just uh, at an individual level, but the church as a whole. And so sometimes it will be necessary to repent uh, as a church as a whole, just as we need to repent at an individual level as well. Uh, what does that look like? Well, it looks like a corporate confession, publicly acknowledging the, the corporate sins in a corporate way, uh, together with every member owning the part they played. <clears throat> uh, it looks like then receiving the gospel, that Jesus died to save and cleanse us again, not just as individuals, but as the church as a whole. And it looks like turning to Jesus in faith, uh, and a desire to reform by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that leads us to the third step. Remember and repent and resume. Do the works that you did at first. Live out love, Jesus, said, Jesus says to the Ephesians. Uh, love for me at the core. Uh, and, and love for those around you as well. The love that you had at first. Love is an essential quality that uh, it's crucial if you're going to last until I return. <clears throat> Even still, uh, verse 6 uh, has another but. Or it's translated yet in the ESV, but it's the same idea. <clears throat> uh, and this leads us to the third section of the main body. Uh, and another commendation uh, in verse 6. He, Jesus says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. <clears throat> uh, I've headed this, se this section, uh, another commendation, which is counterintuitive. Because I think in light of the Ephesians' need for love, if you really think about it, this uh, hatred would would surely be a, a another thing that needs to be addressed. But Jesus commends them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. Uh, this is a bit um, counterintuitive, as I said. Uh, now, Steve's going to talk, I'm sure, about uh, the Nicolaitans in a couple of weeks because it comes up um, more. It's a more significant issue in the uh, the church at Pergamum. Uh, uh, but the Nicolaitans, um, in, in summary, it's, it seems like they were false teachers who advocated um, immorality and, and idolatry. Um, and Jesus commended the Ephesians for their hatred of the works of the Nicolaitans. Uh, now, note that that's not the hatred of the Nicolaitans themselves, um, but their idolatrous and immoral works. And Jesus says, I hate those works too. Uh, the Ephesians' zeal and, and commitment to purity, uh, which again we were introduced to back in verses 2 and 3, uh, led them to have this zealous hatred uh, of idolatry and immorality, which had sort of um, apparently infiltrated other churches in the region. And that's a good thing, Jesus says, because I hate those works too. <clears throat> Again, I, I think this counterintuitive uh, commendation 
It reminds us that love for God and people and hatred of sin are not only compatible, but they're both things that Christians should strive to live out. Uh, Here again, we see that tension that I mentioned at the start, love and holiness, tenderness and authority, transcendence and imminence, which are fully expressed, as I said, in the person of Christ and also should be expressed in us. Uh, All of that brings us then to the final verse. Uh, And this, uh, this verse is the conclusion, verse 7. Uh, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, Now, thus far in the letter, you might have noticed that I've been talking about Jesus and the Ephesians, and that's because this letter has been addressed to the church at Ephesus. We're reading this as as kind of a third party, listening in uh, on the conversation as outsiders. It's not technically addressed to us. Um, It's not even, uh, it's certainly not specifically about us. It's not even necessarily like us. Uh, You can uh, make that, uh, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, um, but it's not necessarily like us. And we shouldn't read these churches these letters to the churches as if they're addressed to us. Except that here in verse 7, there is a shift. Verse 7 here and and all the other conclusions in the other letters are addressed not just to specific churches, but to everyone, everyone who has an ear. Uh, Now, I have ears. I'm pretty sure everyone in our church has ears. Um, I can't see you, obviously, but I'm pretty sure you all have ears. Uh, He who has an ear, that's you and me, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, This verse is addressed to Christians everywhere throughout all time. Whether or not they're in the same situation, whether or not uh, they're exhibiting the same traits as this Ephesian church, this conclusion is essential. We are called to heed this message that Jesus has spoken, that that purity, perseverance, and passion are all crucial, all to be commended, uh, and that we need to repent if we neglect any of them. Um, The illustration is often given of a three-legged stool. Uh, If you have like a a little stool or chair with three legs, uh, it's stable. It'll support you no problems at all. But if you take one of those legs away or, or one leg breaks, the whole thing collapses. Uh, In the same way, these three qualities, passion, purity, and perseverance, are all necessary for a church. Uh, And if a church is exhibiting all these qualities, uh, it will thrive and, and, and last until Jesus returns. But if one is lost, the church will soon collapse. A commitment to gospel purity, which perseveres until Jesus returns and is motivated by a passion for the glory of Jesus. Now, I know you know that these qualities are essential. uh, Because I hear from different people within Mafra Community Church 
that we need to make them a priority. In fact, I, I know who I can go to specifically and talk to uh, who will remind me that we need a deeper, more passionate love. Uh, I know that there are others, um, and I specifically know who I can go to to say that what we need most is to persevere in faith because uh, there are hard times to come. Uh, and still others who I can go to who will tell us that our greatest need is to hurt hold firmly and purely to the gospel of Jesus. If you're one of those people who speaks out about the need for passion and purity and perseverance, then God bless you. I want to encourage you that you have the same concerns for the church as our Lord. Uh, if you want to put it this way, these uh, voices that, that say these things are combined like the three harmonious notes of a major chord. <clears throat> we need all three. Uh, if you're one of the people giving out those crucial reminders, by all means, sing it out loud. The challenge, though, that we see in this verse is to listen to each other in this matter. <clears throat> uh, it's, not just, it's not about talk, uh, and yet in practice, fall into the trap of abandoning, abandoning love, compromising on the gospel, or giving up the faith. As the verse says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Jesus finishes by saying, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, here in this final, final half verse, there is just this wonderful encouragement, a great promise. Uh, and again, this is available to every Christian in every era. <clears throat> Jesus will invite all who conquer to or overcome to come into paradise and eat of the tree of life. Um, the tree of life is, is found in the opening and closing chapters of the Bible. Uh, in Genesis 2 verse 9, it's one of the trees uh, the highly important and symbolic trees in the middle of the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> uh, the other one, of course, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, which Adam and Eve were not to eat of. Uh, and when they did, God cut off the way to the tree of life, guarding it with an angel, uh, according to Genesis 3. So that they wouldn't eat of it and live forever in sin. Uh, but we see it come up again in Revelation 22, the final chapter of the Bible. Uh, in the middle of the New Jerusalem, there is the tree of life. Uh, this is the paradise of God that Jesus describes here, where we will spend eternity. The new creation, the new Jerusalem. Uh, and so for Jesus to give us of the tree of life, uh, is a great and glorious promise in and of itself. It's, it's a, a promise of eternal life. But even it goes even deeper than that. There's this rich gospel significance. I, I, I mean, like I said before, Genesis 3 tells the story of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve uh, gave to Adam, her husband, uh, to eat from the, knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and so they gave up the right to eternal life and plunged humanity into death. But Jesus died. He gave his life on a tree 
so that he could give his bride, his wife, uh, to eat of the tree of life uh, and so give us eternal life. <clears throat> I think this is such a beautiful illustration of the way the gospel of Jesus answers our sinfulness in such a perfect, complete, deep and rich way so as to give us these great and glorious and eternal promises. Now, this is the promise to all those who overcome compromise by a commitment to gospel purity, uh, who overcome desertion by the strength of of gospel perseverance, uh, and especially those for whom that is all rooted in a gospel-shaped, passionate love. So let's pray that we would do that. Lord Jesus, we are so uh, in awe of uh, the great grace that you have given us in making a way for us to eat from the tree of life. <clears throat> that you have loved us uh, and freed us and cleansed us by your blood uh, and that you hold us securely in your right hand uh, and reign over us uh, in authority uh, and, con and sovereign control. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, that in light of that truth, that gospel hope and, and, uh, and eternal uh, significant eternally significant truth that you would bring out of us by the power of your holy spirit uh, a love for you that overflows uh, in works of purity uh, and causes us to persevere until you return uh, lord jesus we pray these things in your name Amen.